0: Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. And I'm Bill Robson, CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. I'm Don Drummond, fellow and resident of C.D. Howe Institute,
1: Stafford Dunning Fellow at Queen's University. Federal Budget 2023 should signal a changing course for Canada. With the fiscal response to COVID-19 behind us, the C.D. Howe Institute is urging policymakers to focus on efficiency in delivering federal services and policies that will support future prosperity. Ottawa is facing four key headwinds, inflation, climbing debt loads, a health care system in crisis, and the constant march of climate change. Bill and Don join us for insight into how the federal government should address these issues while focusing on the future. Gentlemen, hello. Nice Here's to good. be with you. Fighting inflation certainly expected to drag Canada into a recession in 2023. How will this impact Ottawa's ability to fuel prosperity? Uh, Don, do you want to pick that up or shall I jump no, right you go in? Ahead. You
0: go ahead.
2: But I think uh, I hope I speak for Don uh, when I say that uh, baseline expectation is that there will be a recession, but a mild one. Uh, inflation dropping the way that the Bank of Canada expects it to, and and I personally think it it, it it's quite possible. It just doesn't happen without some degree of softening of the economy. Uh, the reason I'm expecting it to be a mild recession is because I think a lot of the downward pressure. Uh, on inflation from monetary policy uh, is already there. Uh, The reason why we would want to worry a little bit about something going wrong is that uh, all the major central banks just about are doing the same thing. So you've got, just as uh, at the time of all the stimulus, you had a lot of cross border effects uh, uh, amplifying every individual country stimulus. It's possible that as we cool things down, we'll get a little bit of that as well. Uh, But it does mean a softer economy. Uh, it probably means a little bit more of a sober mood. And if the government wants to have any shred of credibility left, uh, notwithstanding the weaker economy, they are going to have to lay out a fiscal path. Uh, I would argue that it should actually show a balanced budget within the projection period uh, because they don't have much credibility now. And if they allow the softer economy to just uh, unleash all kinds of spending again, Uh, Then we could be looking at a situation where Canada, to Canadians and to people abroad, uh, suddenly looks like a much
0: less good credit risk than it has up till now. The circumstances call for the federal government to do the thing that all governments have always found the most difficult to do, and that's to do little or nothing. Their knee-jerk reaction to the softening economy would be pile on stimulus, and every billion they add for stimulus, there's another interest rate increase. They'd just be directly conflicting it. And unfortunately, even though there is some better news on the fiscal front, the deficits are coming down, the debt burden's coming down. we still got a debt problem. So for economic inflation reasons to support the monetary policy move and to deal with the debt burden, they can't do much. They've made some strategic moves to protect the most vulnerable, but it would have to be very parsimonious. They can't be spilling billions of
1: dollars. It would just come back as a cost to somebody else. So if a mild recession is expected to shift the economy into a lower gear, how should the federal government turn its attention to stimulating the economy in budget 2023 without fueling inflation? Well, Don, Don,
2: really, your question prefigures one of the key things. Uh, A lot of the uh, pressure that we're seeing in the economy right now, the inflationary pressure, and especially the tight as a drum labor market, uh, that has a lot to do with uh, government spending in general and the federal government spending in particular. They have been hiring like crazy. A lot of people have commented, and I think in our shadow budget we slide a quick uh, 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 comment in about this. That uh, a, a lot of the areas of federal service delivery really aren't showing uh, much improvement, and in some cases there's quite a deterioration. Uh, and they've just been hiring and hiring. Uh, so uh, the, the 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 federal government really needs to relieve some of the pressure on the economy that fiscal policy has helped create, because otherwise, as Don said just now. Uh, the Bank of Canada's job uh, to get inflation down gets that much tougher. And instead of us being perhaps close to the interest rate cycle with the latest hike that they did, uh, we might be looking at a situation where they've got to go up even
1: further. And of course, that's painful for everybody. Don, you've written that monetary authorities need to learn the lessons from two serious blunders. What are those lessons? And how should fiscal authorities on Parliament Hill address monetary policy issues from the Bank of Canada down the street?
0: Well, I go back to 2006, and by that time, there was a fairly tight consensus among policy authorities, monetary policy authorities, and many economists that dealt with monetary policy that, you know, misquoting a little bit Milton Friedman, that if you didn't have an inflation problem, you were not going to have a wild economic cycle. Ah, Maybe it's swing around a little bit here and there, and all you needed to do is just tweak interest rates up or down, and everything would be on a steady course. But just basically, your job was done if you didn't have an inflation problem. And then lo and behold, no sooner did everybody lock that one away as a given in a new economic year. Of course, we had one of the biggest ones ever, as big as we had the Great Depression, and inflation and interest rates hadn't been the problem. And I just showed you do have to pay attention to the regulatory side. Not as much of an issue of Canada, but really it didn't matter. Whatever hit the United States came and, and clobbered us and the rest of the world as well. But just, you know, these subprime mortgages, the mortgages that were flourishing in California with the amount of principal went up over time that only worked if the house price went up. You had to pay attention to a lot of the stuff. And the monetary, annual remember the Federal Reserve Board, unlike in Canada, not just sets the interest rates, but they're responsible for the regulatory side. And I don't think they found the regulatory side very interesting and didn't pay attention to it. Then the second one, My my view, and I think this was a consensus a long time ago, monetary policy is meant for short-term intervention. You got a problem, you hit it hard, you hit it fast, but 90% of the time you do nothing. You just put your feet up in the desk, you dial in at a neutral interest rate, and you just watch the world go by. But we've seen since 2008, monetary authorities around the world, including Canada, stimulate 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 and you know for a while it seemed to be okay it kept pushing against it pushing against the capacity and you weren't creating the inflation problem but eventually it did it always seems to come that mean reversion you come back to this uh, and and also look at what did we gain net wise did it not just all get frittered away in an increase in asset prices Ask a young person the affordability of housing. Did the rock bottom mortgage rates really help you when you couldn't buy a house for under a million dollars in any reasonable size city? Probably not. So I think over the next five, 10 years, we really need to look at that really hard and realize monetary policy twice tried to do things that's not really equipped to do. It may be kind of boring, but just keep us on a steady course. Realize what your potential growth rate is try things to raise it, but not raising it by permanently stimulating them on the monetary side, it backfires. Uh, Michael, I'll just uh, uh, highlight
2: one thing that Don said or, or jump off from his point about mortgages and then bring us back to some of the interactions between monetary and fiscal policy. One reason that we would not uh, like to see the Bank of Canada forced to raise rates you know, to 5% or beyond is because we do have a number of households now in Canada that have fixed payment variable rate mortgages. And uh, there's a nasty sting that maybe doesn't get advertised enough about fixed payment variable rate mortgages. And that is that they aren't fixed payment if the interest uh, uh, begins to exceed your monthly payment. So you're not paying any principal down. Uh, And that trigger zone is where a lot of people currently are. Uh, I don't foresee anything cataclysmic happening. Uh, if if monitor if if rates don't go any higher and we've even seen long term rates which affect mortgages come down a little, um, but uh, that would be one point of vulnerability that we really don't want to test. Uh, I'm going to jump uh, to another key point about the the situation we're in now that hasn't really received a lot of notice but deserves um, notice, and it has to do with the cost of servicing the federal debt. For many years, we looked at the interest payments that were made, so on the expense side of the budget, and compared that to the federal government's net debt. And it's not strictly accurate to do that because there are two sides to net debt. The federal government has assets as well as liabilities. And when you look at their uh, inflow, their revenues and expenses every year, they have revenue and expense, including some investment income. But Not much happened on the investment income side and you didn't get seriously thrown off if you were only focusing on the interest payments. That's not true now. The Bank of Canada is holding a lot of federal government debt. There was this line out there when they were floating all these bonds in the depths of the crisis that this was a great time to borrow because we were borrowing at really low interest rates. Well, but it was all the borrowing was from the Bank of Canada and the federal government owns the Bank of Canada. And now as we go forward, some of the income that the Bank of Canada used to pay to the federal government is not going to be arriving. They lost a lot of money on a lot of the bonds that they bought. We've now uh, ha- got this arrangement that the federal, that the Bank of Canada is not going to be remitting any money to the federal government for a while because it's getting into uh, negative equity territory. The central bank in a sense is bankrupt. Um, and so what that means is there's going to be a lot less investment income flowing in and a proper full picture of the total cost of the federal debt needs to take account of both those things. And when you look at both those things, the cost of the federal debt's actually not at the historic lows that many people claim that it is, and it's going to be higher than a lot of people are expecting. So it's just one more reason to focus on that fiscal imperative of getting us back towards a balanced budget. And, and not piling on debt as though it's possible to do it at no cost to the future because in fact the cost of servicing the debt is already higher than most people realize.
1: So then how do we focus on both deficit and debt reduction without reducing the impact of policies aimed at supporting future prosperity?
0: Well that's uh, as many problems in life the starting point is to recognize the problem and that the federal government in Canada, the provinces, and many other parliamentary budget office, in my view, and many private sector forecasters have not adequately recognized the problem. When we did the shadow budget last year, we put a great deal of effort in figuring out what a reasonable long-term growth rate was, and we came up with slightly below 1.5%, 1.5%. Remember, in the 2021 budget with no explanation, in fact, in, initially not even giving the numbers the federal government in a, on an infamous chart on page 55, use 1.9 and 2.1. And where, where did that come from? Why is it so different from ours? And they said, well, we've had a lot of technological improvements that should drive up productivity. And I said, we've had technological improvements for about 3,000 years, but we're stuck in a 1% productivity path. Like, show me some evidence. And then they edged that down last year, but still not enough. And then we thought, well, you know, the higher immigration pattern, uh, maybe we should bump it up. But then We also, for the first time, we have an estimate of the macroeconomic cost of climate change from the Canadian Climate Institute. And interestingly enough, it kind of offsets the upward bump from the immigration. So lo and behold, we think a reasonable status quo growth rate is only 1.5%, way below what the governments are assuming. Now, this doesn't mean you're happy about it and smile. It doesn't mean you accept it, but you should use it for planning purposes and then do everything in your power to raise it because it's not adequate. It's not adequate to gain a lot of real income gains for individuals. And I'm sure we're gonna get around to healthcare one time, but you know, health spending is gonna grow five or 6% a year. You got one and a half percent real growth if and when we get back to 2% inflation, three and a half percent nominal growth. When you've got a province where half of your spending is growing five or 6%, how do you fund that at three and a half? So it creates all kinds of spending problems, but it always comes back. You've got to raise that economic growth rate. I'll just jump in, Michael, and uh, give credit to our co-author
2: who's not on this call, uh, Alexandre Laurent. Uh, he and Don have uh, uh, published separately on on why the uh, outlook for economic growth is as subdued as it is. The odd thing is that the federal government, uh, including in its budgets, has acknowledged this. They've cited uh, uh, another infamous, if you like, uh uh, OECD study that shows the out- growth outlook for Canada, the productivity outlook for Canada being the worst among the countries the, in, in its forecast over the next uh, 30 to 40 years. Uh, and the peculiar thing is that after acknowledging that in the budget, uh, they really did nothing about it. And so uh, I, I want to underline what Don was just saying that we really need some measures in the budget that would uh, support growth uh, in the non-government sector of the economy uh, including investment and the kind of productivity growth that can raise our incomes faster and help us to deal with the challenges that Don was just mentioning. Such as? Well, Don mentioned climate change. Uh, if you think about what happened with healthcare and, and, and the workforce over the course of COVID, it's a little bit like... Uh, the, the demographic squeeze that we knew was going to uh, hit us on the cost side with health care particularly, but also uh, public sector uh, uh, payments to seniors, uh, and then also people departing the workforce, COVID was kind of like hitting the accelerator on that. Uh, we knew it was going to happen, but the time period over which it was going to happen held out some hope that we could adjust if we were timely in our responses. I'd argue we weren't as timely as in our responses as we as we could have been, and in fact, some things that were on tap to do, like raising the regular age of receipt for OAS, uh, uh, which was a, a plan of the previous government before uh, the the Trudeau government came in, that got rescinded. So, in a sense, we we didn't move on some of those things. Uh, but, uh, you know, COVID, as I say, kind of, it was like putting the foot to the floor and we're suddenly dealing with the world as we kind of suspected it might be in a few years and it's it's upon us now and the time to get serious is now.
1: All right. Well, then let me ask you a, a sharpen the torches and light the pitchforks conversation style question. <laughs> um, should the federal government double back on canceling plans to raise the age of entitlement for old age security to 67?
0: Well, I guess I look back for the rearview mirror, I find it one of the most startling and perverse measures I've ever seen.
1: Just even in
0: political terms, whatever political hit came from Stephen Harper took it. He's the one that announced it. It was going to be in place. Why, after having it in place to go back on it, uh, maybe it's more difficult having reversed it back to 65 to get it back to 67 again. But we we should have stayed there. And it's not arbitrary, you, you you look at it, the ratio of how people, many years they're working, the number of years they retire, balance it off with the increase in longevity. We can't have an age of retirement of 65 that we had decades ago, it doesn't make any sense. So absolutely, it should go to 67. Again, you protect the people that are most vulnerable, but the vast majority of them are not. In fact, there was a you know an interesting chart that all of us are familiar with, maybe not everybody else is familiar with, in the global mail recently, the poverty rate by the cohorts, and it shows seniors have a pretty low poverty rate. And again, there's many, and those will be receiving the Guaranteed GIMP supplement that are very low income, if not necessarily in that definition of poverty, but an awful lot are and why, and we saw one of the measures, allegedly to deal with the pandemic is a cross the board increase in the OAS for those 75 and above, virtually regardless of their income. That kind of thing doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense uh, in the respect of the demographics and the pressures that's gonna have on the expenditures, but the weakening on the revenues.
2: Raising the regular age of receipt for OAS is uh, a fairly hard-edged thing, and it really, you know, comes across as a, a as a bit of a cut. Uh, but I want to emphasize that there are many other things that the government can do, and many of them would accommodate desires that a lot of uh, people who are currently headed for retirement uh, would like, namely uh, being able to save in RRSP or a defined contribution pension plan for longer than you're currently allowed to. Uh, delaying the age at which people have to start drawing income down. There are a whole lot of things that really ought to uh, reflect, as Don was just saying, the increase in life expectancy, the fact that many people uh, nowadays work at jobs that don't physically wear you out the way uh, that many jobs in the past used to. And so there are people who would actually really like the opportunity to work longer and to save longer and then draw down their savings later in life and maybe at a lower rate. And in our shadow budget, we anticipate a few of those things. So the raising the age of receipt for OAS is one uh, important step. Uh, But there are a number of other things as well that the government should be doing to make it possible for people to work and save longer.
1: Well, let's sort of key off uh, a bit on, on, Don, what you had said there earlier, because I can imagine a millennial uh, watching this would argue that, yes, of course, seniors um have a lower rate of poverty compared to other demographics they paid off their houses because they only paid three dollars for them back in 1950. Uh, but let's come back to something bill that you had said as as well about mortgages uh, and how there's going to be a huge crunch for a particular demographic on that as well should there be something in the federal budget to address that issue today
0: well i just say generally Intergenerational fairness is one of our key considerations in doing the shadow budget. My view is that the current generation, the if the next generations can just cope with the mess we've left them on the environment, that is gonna take every ounce and every dollar of the resources that they've got. Probably mostly on the adaptation because things have just gone too far to do all that much in the mitigation. That's where gonna take all their efforts. And that's why, I'm really reluctant to see us pass on a big debt to them. So by the way, we're giving you this environmental mess that you're going to have to cope with, not solve. It's too far gone to solve. You're going to have to cope with, but we're also giving you a gigantic debt that we spent on consumption that you're not going to benefit from. You can't, you can't do both. We have a moral obligation. It's not even economic or fiscal. It's a moral obligation. And that's why we say great that the debt burdens come down from about 50 heading towards 40, but it's got to go a lot, a lot lower than that. We're just passing off too much of a burden to the next generation, as you point out, that they've, they've even with the housing prices coming down from their absolute peak, they've still got an affordability problem. Out of that. They've got enough on their plate without us adding more from the fiscal woes. Well, it, one of the responses of the federal government, particularly, although not
2: only them, to uh, people's concerns about affordability and affordability of housing has been to give people money. And that throws more fuel on the fire uh, because the Uh, long-run problem, and in fact, it's more in our faces now as a short-term problem with housing, is the lack of supply. Uh, Happily, in a number of uh, areas, including in the province of Ontario, there are some steps being made to try and bring new houses uh, uh, on stream. That'll take a little while. With respect to the mortgage stress, um, my expectation and... uh, you know these these are things that where you get subjected to uh, nasty surprises from time to time but from where we are now i would say there are people who are going to be feeling the pinch there are people who are going to be going to their banks and saying i, I need some help with this and in the current environment, a lot of banks would be willing to say, "Okay, let's let's figure out how to make this work for you." I mean, banks do not want uh, people who have mortgages with them to get into financial trouble such that the mortgage is no good. Um, the area where the federal government needs to be paying more attention than just giving people more money is to make sure that nothing on the regulatory side impedes that. There's a bit of a tendency when we get to periods of financial excess for uh, the regulatory side to try and clamp down on leverage in the financial system. And, of course, in in a prudential sense, that's a smart thing to do. But you want to be careful that you're not tightening the screws at exactly the moment when you might need a bit of accommodation for people who are getting in trouble. And if we're at the peak of the interest rate cycle, it really is a temporary accommodation.
1: It's not like you're doing something that's going to cause a bigger problem down the road. What should we see in budget 2023 regarding climate change, considering the impact the net zero plans will have on a carbon-intensive economy such as ours?
0: I would love to see them bring the threads together. Uh, I work for the Climate Change Institute. I don't even know how all the pieces come together. That's not necessarily a criticism. In a previous era, maybe a little bit naive, I guess we kind of thought there'd be one overriding strategy. The reality is sunk in. There's strategies for different sectors. I get that, but we've got so many, and and we're we're caught in, in a crossroads because we have decided that the carbon levy is going to do the heavy lifting. It's going to go to one hundred seventy dollars a ton of emissions. We've never even told people how it's going to get there and when it's going to get there. That's totally unacceptable. I mean, it's supposed to get there by two thousand thirty. We're two thousand twenty three. If you're running a business, you're thinking today about what your production is going to look like in two thousand thirty, and how could you know? how to do that, that that just doesn't get it. Now we got the provinces can come out of the federal scheme if they've got something that's reasonably similar and reasonably not pushed very hard. So you've got a whole bunch of scattered different approaches going across the country but now we've got the mislabeled Inflation Reduction Act in the United States, which has absolutely nothing, of course, to do with inflation reduction. It's a bunch of subsidies for clean growth. But every time the U.S. raises a subsidy for clean growth, Canada sticks up its hands and says, we want that too. And you go, well, wait a minute. The United States is not using the carbon pricing mechanism. We are. We don't need to use the subsidy. But I want to say, where are we coming out on all this? And what's the overall approach? I think a tad of honesty would help too. Let's admit to everybody the road to net zero emissions is not going to be smooth. All you need to know, we're a carbon intensive economy and we're low on clean growth technology. We're not a particularly innovative economy. If you were looking down from another planet around the world and you looked at us, and say, hmm, that's going to be problematic. That doesn't mean you don't do it. You've got to do it, but we got to be honest, it's a, going to be a rough road and it takes a lot of coordination of the policy and it takes a lot of transparency. What we tend to get is an 800 page document on the budget well, the economy which hardly says anything about the environment then we get a separate but document on the environment that says almost nothing about the economy they go together They're, the reasons why we don't do environment measures is always the same a fear for economic costs we have to show that we can do it in a way that doesn't unduly damage their cost but how can you do that if somebody did bring it together so i desperately want to see that to get ring together just as i do in another one that's fairly similar How do you bring together all the pieces of the immigration? I have absolutely no doubt 500,000 immigrants, probably close to 700 with temporary foreign workers will raise GDP. Will it raise GDP capita? That requires you to really sharpen your tools on selection, integration processes. That's a national dialogue and a national effort. Are we gonna do it? Because I haven't seen that in the past i really like to see how that comes together. You can't just as a federal government say, oh, we picked this number over to everybody else to start that out. No, we got to see our way through that. So we got these two big challenges and I just come back and throw in the other aspect on the aging. It's, it's fascinating because it's simultaneously the most predictable public policy you can possibly imagine. We've known for seven decades that this was coming and it's here and the one we've done the least amount to do. And if you look at what do we do, the first line, 17% of the people in a hospital right as we speak are in what we call alternate level of care. They shouldn't have been in the hospital in the first place. They're almost all seniors because there's no other place for them. That's just the worst place in the world for them and the most expensive. Then we put them literally warehouse in long-term care. I've yet to meet a senior who's put up their hand and said, I want to go to long-term care. It's very expensive. What they want to age in place in their home and their community, and we don't offer that. I mean, Bill referred to the OECD and look at another OECD. We spend 0.2% of our gross domestic product on home care. We're tied with Slovenia for the lowest. So we're not last on that. And the good Canadian way, we win because we're not quite last, but we're tied for last.
1: Okay, Bill. Doug kind of went like a public policy squirrel around that tree a few times. Let's bring it back uh, specifically to net zero and and the economy. uh, And we can dig into some of those other issues uh, as well. What are your thoughts on what we need to see in budget 2023 regarding climate change.
2: Well, Don makes a very important point about the incoherence of government policies in this area. Uh, Most economists uh, and and many business people as well think that pricing carbon emissions is the way to do it. It's very powerful and it's a dial that you can turn as you need to do. Now, there's a a price out there that as Don has said is beginning to seem a, a little unlikely that we'll get there. And we're instead, uh, we've got all these regulatory regimes uh, coming into place. We've got this emissions reduction plan from the federal government that uh, I'm sorry to say it's utterly impractical. It has goals for automotive. It has goals for agriculture. It has goals for building that simply uh, in an engineering sense are are not practically possible. Um, And and so we've got this overlay of all this stuff uh, on top of the carbon price. And really, it ought to be the carbon price that is doing most of the work. Uh, There's a lot of government revenue to be had with a a carbon pricing regime that goes up in the way that Don was just describing. In our shadow budget, we have one idea, and uh, and perhaps it's not the most politically palatable idea, but uh, prices can do a lot of the work, and we're a little concerned about competitiveness. Raise the GST rate on transportation fuels. The, The thing that's important about that is... It, uh, you know, when the price of oil is dropping off as it's as it's currently do- doing, that does create a little bit of room to do that. Uh, but it does give you a very strong signal to reduce your carbon dioxide emission a- emission activities. Uh, and also, with the GST, you get rebates at the border. Value added taxes are designed not to make your exports less competitive. So that's another mechanism that uses prices rather than regulation to um, uh, get carbon dioxide emissions down. And I I don't know that that's going to strike very many people who look at our shadow budget as a politically attractive thing to do, but we stuck it in there because it makes the point. You have got to move on prices. That's the powerful lever. It's the least economically damaging lever. And if they're not prepared to do that, uh, then we should be publicly acknowledging that these targets are out of reach and uh, start thinking about what kind of path to less carbon dioxide emissions would make sense.
1: But wouldn't uh, a, a tax an additional tax on on gasoline do just that much more damage to a slowing economy for particularly the middle class and and those who are struggling as well? wouldn't wouldn't we just ultimately be doing more damage than good with something like that?
2: Well, anytime you're increasing taxation on carbon dioxide emission activities, you're going to affect people's living standards because uh, energy that and other activities that release carbon dioxide are just so central to so much of what we do. Um, But to do it through a pricing mechanism is the less... Uh, damaging way of doing it. Doing it in a regulatory way often appeals to people because they think somebody else is going to have to change their behavior. Somebody else is going to have to pay the price. But when you look at the implications of the uh, of the emissions reduction plan, for example, uh, what's that going to mean for our, our, the availability of electricity? What's that going to mean for the kind of housing retrofits we're going to have to do? I mean, these are very profound uh, changes in society that uh, the government has been kind of reluctant to, to really spell out. And since Don mentioned Immigration at the same time, I'll, I'll just say, like, you know, if if you're if you're if you're trying to ramp down on on CO two emissions and catch up because we're not as far along that path as we uh, said we would be, then increasing immigration numbers so dramatically works directly against that. And and here's the situation again where the federal government just seems to, uh, you know, they they've got certain political messaging that they want to deliver in one direction or in another direction. There's nobody, as Don said, uh, kind of. Uh, tying all these strings together to make it coherent
0: so it isn't coherent. just I want I to touch back on the pricing of, of uh, whether it's a carbon tax or some substitute or complement such as a GST on transportation. The point is not to take a revenue and have the economic impact. The point is to create the price signal. And as was the intent with the carbon levy was to recycle the proceeds. It wasn't to extract these billions and billions of dollars out of the economy and of course going back to the origin Gordon Campbell and British Columbia I think one of the reasons that was pretty successful politically was that they promised tax reductions that would go with it and people didn't mind paying that and and you would see some examples of the provinces where they have raised their sales tax and used the proceeds to lower their income taxes those went reasonably well so our, our point in this case is not to extract a bunch of money that's going to weaken the economy. We want to create a price signal that people and corporations will
1: respond to. Well, What a fascinating aspect of this, this whole conversation and particularly the idea that the impact that climate change will have on our economy um, is going to offset a lot of the benefits that we've been seeing by bringing more people into this country as, as immigration is widely considered to be a fuel for any given economy. Uh, before our time is up though, um, is budget 2023 the place to engage in wholesale reform of health care, as many are calling for.
0: Well, first of all, who's going to do that? Um, Let's not get into too long discussion on the Constitution. That's not the federal government's property, and and that's a worry. Um, They're obviously itchy to get more and more involved. Nobody stands up and said, I voted for you because you cut a check to the provinces of the youth for whatever they do. They want to have a more active role and you can see them trying to get their teeth into long-term care and healthcare and and the like. So, no, I don't think the reform will come. It can and it should come at the provincial level. You know, I think it's a very interesting political level. Um, One of the problems with healthcare in Canada is the Canadian public has been too complacent. Um, it wasn't that many years ago the CBC poll came back as the saying that Canadians thought best captured us as a nation was our public health care system. So they were holding that. It's not particularly public. It's not a Canadian, it's definitely not a sim, sim, symbol, but w- we feared the American and we thought we weren't American. But now people are dissatisfied. You know, those five million people that aren't attached to our primary care, they're not too happy, and even if you are attached, you can't get an appointment the long wait times. they're saying we want different. I thought the last Nova, Nova Scotia election was very interesting, the 68,000 households that didn't have a primary care provider came the lead election item. And as soon as the new government came in place, they created these walk-in clinics at pharmacies led by nurse practitioners. And uh, There you know, that's how it works. If the public speaks and say, we're mad as hell, we're not gonna take it anymore and we're going to vote or not vote on how you do it, you get a response. But that was a provincial response, and you can do it. And you, you've seen little announcements recently in primary care teams, very, very small number of the Ontario, but they have the power to do it. And they've got a, we spent 12% of our GDP. We don't necessarily need to spend more money to fix this. Other countries are getting better outcomes spending a lot of money. We could uh, learn some things from them. Our shadow budget makes no recommendation
2: for the feds to increase their transfers to the provinces uh, for healthcare or for anything else. Uh, The last time the feds uh, engineered a big health uh, transfer increase to the provinces, there wasn't much sign of improvement in healthcare, but there sure was a sign that costs went up. And there's every reason to think the same thing would happen again. One of the reasons that we think the federal government should uh, reduce its fiscal footprint over time, uh, spend less, borrow less, is because over time the provinces are the ones on the front line of dealing with these healthcare pressures. They're the ones who have to deliver the services. They're the ones who have to negotiate with the doctors, pay the nurses, run the hospitals and ultimately reform the system. So our view on that is that the federal government should get out of the way. Uh, It should uh, behave in such a way that over time the provinces are going to be able to raise more taxes probably through sales taxes, consumption taxes than they do today in order to fund that system. Uh, and and make those tough choices. And when the feds are in there uh, sort of saying they're going to have this condition and that condition, uh, it really distracts attention from the main task the provinces face, which is to do a better job uh, within their own
1: uh, boundaries. Uh, Let's wrap this up by asking each of you um, if there was a public policy expert on Parliament Hill listening to this conversation today. What, Bill, would be the one thing you'd want them to walk away with from our time together today? Well, I would want to see
2: in the projections in the upcoming budget a path to budget balance. Uh, And we've touched on some of the reasons for that, but there's one additional one that I think is critically important, and that is when you're aiming for zero... Uh, Every dollar that you spend or every dollar that you want to offer in tax relief, you have to justify it as being more valuable than the dollar that you might have spent on something else or a dollar of tax relief that you might have uh, offered somewhere else. That conversation has not been happening in Canada since 2015. And we've seen the federal government spending an awful lot of money, some of it in ways that uh, are, are are commendable or at least acceptable, uh, but some of it, especially when it comes to the cost of the federal government's own operations, the, the the wages and salaries of federal employees, very hard to justify. And until we see that path back to balance, uh, I think that not only is the, the sort of fiscal footprint of the federal government growing in a way that's problematic, uh, but I don't think they're making as good decisions in their budgets as they would if they had that bottom
0: line discipline. As an economist, I would say I want them to change their perspective on politics. The perspective on politics and budgets is always there's an election coming up in X months and we got to buy a bunch of votes. That's wrong. People are concerned about the current situation. And they're even more concerned about the future lay out the challenges before Canada in 20 years and show a vision to address them. And if you sell a vision that Canadians are comfortable with, you know what? You probably will be, whoever does that will probably be the government for the next 20 years. And that will be the opposite of just buying people off in the short term. That will realize we got a challenge. We got to do better on the immigration settlement. We got to do better on the environment. We got to get the debt burden down. We got to get the growth rate up. We recognize these problems and you know what? We got a problem. And we're going to address it, and we've got a path for that. It's going to take a while to get it through. But keep electing us, and we'll get it done.
1: Don Drummond is a fellow-in-residence at the Institute and a Stafford Dunning fellow at the Queen's University. Bill Robson is the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. And Alexander Laurent is a co-author of the shadow budget that we've just been talking about. Still to come, from the C.D. Howe, February 23rd, the Regent debate titled, Be It Resolved, Competition Will Save Canada's Broken Healthcare System. Speaking for the motion is Christy Clark, former Premier of British Columbia, alongside Sean Francis, the Chair and CEO of MedCAN. Speaking against the motion is former Federal Leader of the Official Opposition, Thomas Mulcair, and Dr. Danielle Martin, Professor and Chair of the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Toronto. And on February 28th, Bob Hamilton, the Commissioner of the Canada Revenue Agency, at a roundtable luncheon at the Institute's Toronto headquarters on future directions of the CRA. Visit cdhow.org for more information. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for watching.
0: You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not for profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.